Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, Modern Cinderella by Louisa May Alcott. The kneading needle stuck in her hair, saying, like a sarcastic unicorn, I really thought you had a soul above pots and kettles, but I see you haven't, and I beg your pardon for the injustice I have done you. Not a whit disturbed, John smiled, as if it's a mighty pleasant fancy of his own, as he replied, Thank you, Di. And as for the proof of the other depravity of my nature, let me tell you that I have the greatest possible respect for those articles of ironmongery. Some of the happiest hours of my life have been spent in their society. Some of my pleasantest associations are connected with them. Some of my best lessons have come to me among them. And when my fortune is made, I intend to show my gratitude by taking three flat irons rampant for my coat of arms. Nan laughed merrily as she looked at the burns on her hand, but I elevated the most prominent feature of her brown countenance and sighed despondingly. Dear, what a disappointing world. I no sooner build a nice castle in Spain and settle a smart young knight therein than down it comes about my ears, and the ungrateful youth who might fight dragons if he choose insists on quenching his energies in a saucepan and making a St. Lawrence of himself by wasting his life on a series of gridirons. <sighs> if I were only a man, I would do something better than that and prove that heroes are not all dead yet. But instead of that, I'm only a woman and must sit rasping my temper with absurdities like this. And I wrestled with her knitting as if it were fate and she were paying off the grudge she owed it. John leaned toward her, saying with a look that made his plain face handsome, Die. My father began the world as I began it, and left it the richer for the useful years he spent here, as I hope I may leave it some half-century hence. His memory makes that dingy shop a pleasant place to me, for there he made an honest name, led an honest life, and bequeathed to me his reverence for honest work. That is the sort of hardware, Die, that no rust can corrupt, and which will always prove a better fortune than any of your knights can achieve with sword and shield. I think I am not a clod, or quite without some aspirations above money yet, for I sincerely desire that courage that makes daily life heroic by self-denial and cheerfulness of heart. I am eager to conquer my own rebellious nature and earn the confidence of innocent and upright souls. I have a great ambition to become as good a man and leave as good a memory behind me a solid John Lord. Di winked violently and seemed five times in perfect silence, but quiet Nan had the gift of knowing when to speak, and by a timely word saved her sister from a thunder shower and her stocking from destruction. John, have you seen Philip since you wrote about your last meeting with him? The question was for John, but the soothing tone was for Di, who gratefully accepted it and perked up again with speed. Yes, and I meant to have told you about it, 
answered John, plunging into the subject at once. I saw him a few days before I came home and found him more disconsolate than ever, just ready to go to the devil, as he forcibly expressed himself. I consoled the poor lad as well as I could, telling him his wisest plan was to defer his proposed expedition and to go on as steadily as he had begun, thereby proving the injustice of your father's prediction concerning his want of perseverance and the sincerity of his affection. I told him the change in Laura's health and spirits was silently working in his favor and that a few more months of persistent endeavor would conquer your father's prejudice against him and make him a stronger man for the trial and the pain. I read him bits about Laura from your own and I's letters, and he went away at last as patient as Jacob, ready to serve another seven years for his beloved Rachel. God bless you for it, John, cried a fervent voice, and looking up, they saw the cold, listless Laura transformed into a tender girl, all aglow with love and longing, as she dropped her mask and showed a living countenance eloquent with the first passion and softened by the first grief of her life. John rose involuntarily in the presence of an innocent nature whose sorrow needed no interpreter. The girl read sympathy in his brotherly regard and found comfort in the friendly voice that asked, half playfully, half seriously, Shall I tell him that he has not forgotten, even for an Apollo? That Laura the artist has not conquered Laura the woman, and predict that the good daughter will yet prove the happy wife? With a gesture full of energy, Laura tore her Minerva from top to bottom, while two great tears rolled down the cheeks grown wan with hope deferred. Tell him I believe all things, hope all things, and that I can never forget. Nan went to her and held her fast leaving the prince of two loving but grimy hands upon her shoulders. Di looked on approvingly, for, though stony-hearted regarding the cause, she fully appreciated the effect, and John, turning to the window, received the commendations of a robin swaying on an elm bough with sunshine on its ruddy breast. The clock struck five, and John declared that he must go, for being an old-fashioned soul, he fancied that his mother had a better right to his last hour than any younger woman in the land always remembering that she was a widow and he only saw. Nan ran away to wash her hands and came back with the appearance of one who had washed her face. And so she had. But there was a difference in the water. Play on your father, girls, and remember that it will be six months before that John will trouble you again. With which preface the young man kissed his former playfellows as heartily as the boy had been wont to do when stern parents banished him to distant schools, and three little maids bemoaned his fate. But times were changed now, for Di grew alarmingly rigid during the ceremony. Laura received the salute like a graceful queen, and Nan returned it with heart and eyes and tender lips, making each an improvement on the childish fashion of the thing that John was moved to support his paternal character by softly echoing her father's words, "'Take care of yourself, my little Martha.'" Then they all streamed after him along the garden with the endless messages and warnings girls are so prone to give and the young man, with a great softness at his heart, went away as many another John has gone feeling better for the companionship of innocent maidenhood and stronger to wrestle with temptation to wait and hope and work. Let's throw a shoe after him for luck as dear old Mrs. Gummidge did after David and the Willard Marcus. Quick, Nan, you always have old shoes on. Toss one and shout, good luck. 
cried one of her eccentric inspirations. Nan tore off her shoe and threw it far along the dusty road with a sudden longing to become that auspicious article of apparel that the omen might not fail. Looking backward from the hilltop, John answered the meek shout cheerily and took to the group with a lingering glance. Laura in the shadow of the elms, Di perched on the fence, and Nan leaning far over the gate with her hand above her eyes and the sunshine touching her brown hair with gold. He waved his hat and turned away, but the music seemed to die out of the blackbird's song, and in all the summer landscape his eyes saw nothing but the little figure at the gate. Bless and save us. Here's a flock of people coming, my hair's in a toss, and Nan's without her shoe. Run, fly, girls, or the Philistines will be upon us, cried. Tumbling off her perch in sudden alarm, three agitated young ladies with flying draperies and countenances of mingled mirth and dismay might have been seen precipitating themselves into a respectable mansion with unbecoming haste, but the squirrels were the only witnesses of this vision of sudden flight and being used to ground and lofty tumbling, didn't mind it. When the pedestrians passed, the door was decorously closed, and no one visible but a young man who snatched something out of the road and marched away again, whistling with more vigor of tone than accuracy of tone. Only that, and nothing more. Summer ripened in the autumn, and something fairer than sweet peas and mignonette in Annie's garden grew. Her nature was the counterpart of the hillside grove, where as a child she had read her fairy tales, and now as a woman turned the first pages of a more wondrous legend still. Lifted above the many-gabled roof, yet not cut off from the echo of human speech, the little grove seemed a green sanctuary, fringed about with violets and full of summer melody and bloom. Gentle creatures haunted it, and there was none to make afraid. Wood pigeons cooed and crickets chirped their shrill roundelays. And enemies and lady ferns looked up from the moss that kissed the wanderer's feet. Warm airs were all afloat, full of vernaladors for their grateful sense. Silvery birches shimmered like spirits of the wood. Larches gave their green tassels to the wind. And the pines made airy music sweet and solemn as they stood looking heavenward through veils of summer sunshine or shrouds of wintry snow. Nan never felt alone now in this charmed wood, for when she came into its precinct, were so full of solitude, all things seems to wear one shape. Familiar eyes looked at her from the violets in the grass. Familiar words sounded in the whisper of the leaves, grew conscious that an unseen influence filled the air with new delights, and touched earth and sky with a beauty never seen before. Slowly these mayflowers budded in her maiden heart. Rosily they bloomed, and silently they waited till some lover of such lowly herbs should catch their fresh aroma, should brush away the fallen leaves, and lift them to the sun. Though the eldest of the three, she had long been overtopped by the more aspiring maids, but though she meekly yielded the reins of government, whenever they chose to drive, they were soon restored to her again, for Di fell into literature and Laura into love. Thus engrossed, these two forgot many duties, which even blue stockings and immoratos are expected to perform, and slowly all the homely humdrum cares that housewives know became Nan's daily life, and she accepted it without a thought of discontent. Noiseless and cheerful as the sunshine, 
she went to and fro, doing the tasks that mothers do, but without a mother's sweet reward, holding fast the numberless slight threads that bind a household tenderly together, and making each day a beautiful success. Die, being tired of running, riding, climbing, and boating, decided at last to let her body rest and put her equally active mind through what classical collegians term a course of sprouts. Having undertaken to read and know everything, she devoted herself to the task with great energy, going from Sioux to Swedenborg with perfect impartiality, and having different authors as children have sundry distempers, being fractious while they lasted, but all the better for them once over. Carlyle appeared like scarlet fever and raged violently for a time, for being anything but a passive bucket, Dye became prophetic with Mahmoud, belligerent with Cromwell, and made the French Revolution a veritable reign of terror to her family. Gethe and Schiller alternated like fever and agua. Mephistopheles became her hero, Joan of Arc her model, and she turned her black eyes red over Egmont and Wallenstein. A mild attack of Emerson followed, during which she was lost in a fog, and her sisters rejoiced inwardly when she emerged informing from that. The Sphinx was drowsy, her wings were furled. Poor Di was floundering slowly to a proper place, but she splashed up a good deal of foam by getting out of her depth, and rather exhausted herself by trying to drink the ocean dry. Laura, after the midsummer night's dream that often comes to girls of seventeen, woke up to find that youth and love were no match for age and common sense. Philip had been flying about the world like a thistledown for five and twenty years, generous-hearted, frank and kind, but with never an idea of the serious side of life in his handsome head. Great, therefore, were the wrath and dismay of the enamored thistledown, when the father of his love mildly objected to seeing her begin the world in a balloon with a very tender but very inexperienced aeronaut for a guide. Laura is too young to play house yet, and you are too unstable to assume the part of lord and master, Philip. Go and prove that you have prudence, patience, energy, and enterprise, and I will give you my girl, but not before. I must seem cruel that I may be truly kind. Believe this, and let a little pain lead you to great happiness, or show you where you would have made a bitter blunder. The lovers listened, owned the truth of the old man's words, bewailed their fate, and yielded. Laura, for the love of her father, Philip, for the love of her. He went away to build a firm foundation for his castle in the air, and Laura retired into an invisible convent, where she cast off the world and regarded her sympathizing sisters through a grate of superior knowledge and unshareable grief. Like a devout nun, she worshipped St. Philip and firmly believed in his miraculous powers. She fancied that her woes set her apart from common cares, and slowly fell into a dreamy state, professing no interest in any mundane matter but the art that first attracted Philip. Crayons, bread crusts, and gray paper became glorified in Laura's eyes, and her one pleasure was to sit pale and still before her easel, day after day, filling her portfolios with the faces he had once admired. Her sisters observed that every Bacchus, piping fawn, or dying gladiator bore some likeness to a calmly countenance that heathen god or hero never owned, and seeing this, they privately rejoiced that she had found such solace for her grief. Mrs. Lord's keen eye had read a certain newly written page in her son's heart, his first chapter of that romance, begun in paradise, whose interest never flags, 
whose beauty never fades, whose end can never come till love lies ahead. With womanly skill she divined the secret, with motherly discretion she counseled patience, and her son accepted her advice, feeling that, like many a healthful herb, its worth lay in its bitterness. Love like a man, John, not like a boy, and learn to know yourself before you take a woman's happiness into your keeping. You and Nan have known each other all your lives, yet till this last visit, you never thought you loved her more than any other childish friend. It is too soon to say the word so often spoken hastily, so hard to be recalled. Go back to your work. For another year, think of Nan in this light of this new hope Compare her with comelier, gayer girls, and by absence prove the truth of your belief. Then, if distance only makes her dearer, if time only strengthens your affection, and no doubt of your own worthiness disturbs you, come back and offer her what any woman should be glad to take. My boy's true heart. John smiled at the motherly pride of her words, but answered with a wistful look. It seems very long to wait, Mother. If I could just ask you for a word of hope. Very patient then. Ah, my dear. Better bear one year of impatience now than a lifetime of regret hereafter. Nan's happy. Why disturb her by a word which will bring the tender and troubles that come soon enough to such conscientious creatures as herself? If she loves you, time will prove it. Therefore, let the new affection spring and ripen as your early friendship is and it will be all the stronger for a summer's growth. Philip was rash and has to bear his trial now, and Laura shares it with him. Be more generous, John. Make your trial. Bear your doubts alone, and give Nan the happiness without the pain. Promise me this, dear. Promise me to hope and wait. The young man's eye kindled, and in his heart there rose a better ship, a truer than any of Di's knights had ever known. I'll try, mother, was all he said. But she was satisfied, for John seldom tried in vain. Oh, girls, how splendid you are! It does my heart good to see my handsome sisters in their best array, cried Nan, one mild October night, as she put the last touches to certain airy raiment fashioned by her own skillful hands, and then fell back to survey the grand effect. Di and Laura were preparing to assist at an event of the season, said Nan, with her own locks fallen on her shoulders, for want of sundry combs promoted to her sister's heads, and her dress in unwanted disorder, for lack of the many pins extracted in exciting crises of the toilet, hovered like an affectionate bee about two very full-blown flowers. Laura looks like a cool undine, with the ivy wreaths in her shining hair. Then I don't know what great creature she resembles most, said beaming with sisterly admiration. Like Juno, Zenobia, and Cleopatra simmered into one, with the touch of Zantip by way of spice. But to my eye... The finest woman of the three is the disheveled young person embracing the bedpost, for she stays at home herself and gives her time and taste to making homely people fine, which is a waste of good material and an imposition on the public. As Di spoke, both the fashion plates looked affectionately at the grey-gowned figure, 
but being works of art, they were obliged to nip their feelings in the bud and reserve their caresses till they returned to common life. Put on your bonnet, and we'll leave you at Mrs. Lord's on our way. It will do you good, Nan. And perhaps there might be news from John, added as she bore down upon the door like a man of war under full sail. Or from Philip, sighed Laura, with a wistful look. We'll continue our story in our next episode. I want to tell you that we are always looking out for new stories to read. You can email them to me, bigvoicejay at gmail.com. Remember to leave a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that this little show is putting people to sleep. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>